as we come again to God's Word, if you'd like to read along with me, we'll be in 1 John chapter 4. And this is again 1 John chapter 4. But before we read, would you please pray with me? Lord, we are finite people. Our days are numbered, our wisdom limited, and we see in a glass darkly as through a clouded mirror. And so what we can see, we even just see in part. Lord, we know that when the perfect comes, the partial will disappear, but in this moment, would you help us to see now what we can see? You have given us these things, so would you press them upon us in a way that would grow us up in wisdom, in maturity, and in love? By your Spirit, cause us to believe. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is 1 John chapter 4. Uh, I'll begin uh, in verse 11 and carry through the end of the chapter. So 1 John chapter 4, beginning in verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his Spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God... God abides in him, and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. This is the word of God. Now, this is the second of three weeks, so we're right here in the middle, three weeks where we are looking at the theme of love from these verses. If you were here with us last week, we looked at the very short sentence, God is love. 
which is to say, love is not all that God is. He is more than only love, but love is completely who God is. That is, it is part of his whole nature. Everything that God does flows from his love. So because God is love, God the Father sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. And because the Son is the Savior of the world, all who believe in him, who have, have life in his name, our salvation all ultimately comes from his love. That we looked at last week. Today, we're now looking at a particular effect of God's love. We'll be focusing on the sentence, perfect love casts out fear. It's in verse 18. I'll read the whole verse. There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Now, this might bring a bunch of questions to our mind. If here we're talking about the love of God, if it's God's love at hand, is his love ever imperfect? And if, and if perfect love casts out fear, what does it mean if I sometimes fear? Does that mean that I have some lesser love of God? Or maybe that I have no love of God? And if that's the case, whatever's going on there, how do I change this? What do I do with all of this? These would be good questions. To help us understand this sentence, perfect love casts out fear, we need to look more at the meaning of two of the words in that sentence, the word perfect and the word fear, because both of those words are frequently misunderstood in the scripture, and we need to get what they're talking about here. Let's look at the first of those words, perfect, okay? The word perfect, that word carries a lot of baggage and preconceptions for us. You know, some people are too quick to immediately dismiss perfection. They'd say, eh, nobody's perfect, and shrug. So I'm not even going to try. I'm not even going to think about it. I'm not even going to look at that. There are others who have the opposite experience. They're almost obsessed with it cannot let it go. Perfectionists who want every little thing to be in exactly a particular place. And, and some people think that that's a positive trait, but it's not. Perfectionism is really about being critical and controlling. And that's not what we want. Part of the difficulty with all of this is we often mean different things by our concept of what it means to be perfect. So if I were to ask any of you what your perfect day looks like, I'm probably going to get very different answers from different ones of you. 
Some of us might have a hot summer day with a glass of tea on the porch. Others of us might be shivering in the wintertime, and that's a perfect day. We just have a, a full span. Our, our ideas of perfection are far more fluid and nebulous than we often admit. But at the root, for most of us in our minds, we assume that perfection refers to something that is fully flawless. That's what we often think about with perfection, that it's fully flawless. And it's fine to use the word that way. It is. That's just not what the Bible usually means by perfection. In fact, the word that describes love here is not often about perfection as we imagine it. So let me just step back from the word perfect perfect for a moment and use the original Greek word. I know that's nerdy. Bear with me. In the Greek, it's teleos love. Teleos is the Greek word, like telescope, teleos love. Let's try to unpack what exactly that is and what it looks like. Let me give three examples in the scripture that together help us understand what teleos is. So we get an example of a teleos feast. In the time when Jesus is a boy, 12-year-old, and his whole family, once a year, uh, traveled to Jerusalem for this week-long feast the Feast of Passover and Unleavened Bread. It lasts for seven days. And, and there's a point at which Jesus' family starts to head back home. And they realize as they're leaving that they have accidentally left Jesus behind, which is very relatable as a parent. Uh, but, uh, but they go back and they, they, they're looking for him. They find Jesus at the temple. And we're told that the parents had left after the seven days of the feast were teleos. Okay? There's one, a teleos feast. Okay? Now, there's a, there's a moment of a teleos race, as in running race. The Apostle Paul speaks about his own life, his mission, in the metaphor of a race, a marathon. And when he's writing to the Philippians, he says, as he's still kind of traveling from city to city, writing letters to various people, he says to them, I press on, straining forward toward the goal to win the prize, but I have not yet reached teleos in this race. Until he writes to Timothy later at the end of his life, and he says, Timothy... I have kept the faith, I have fought the good fight, and the race for me is teleos. So we have a teleos feast, a teleos race. Last one, we have a teleos body. The author of Hebrews, uh, while he's encouraging his listeners to increase in wisdom and righteousness and holiness, he, he says to them in chapter 5 of Hebrews, little children live by drinking milk. But as those children grow up, solid food is for those who are teleos. Okay? Let me take all of these three examples and pull them together. None of these examples are talking about moral perfection. Did you notice that? They are not talking about some idea of a state of flawlessness. When a feast is teleos, it's completed. When a race is teleos, it is finished. When a body is teleos, it is grown up. 
Let me give one more example that I think helps bundle this all together. It's not an example from the scripture, it's from the garden. If we think about a perfect tomato, in terms of, it, of Bible terms, teleos, a perfect tomato, that perfect tomato would not be some airbrushed, overplumped, round, neon red tomato like you would see in a Burger King commercial or, or somewhere else. You know, that perfect tomato might be all sorts of shapes and sizes and shades of color. It might be lumpy, bumpy, stumpy, frumpy, any sort of those things, as long as it's healthy and ripe and ready to eat. That's a teleos tomato. It's perfect. Perfect, then, in these terms, in the way the Bible talks about it, does not mean it's some extremely rare, unreachable state. A perfect tomato is not one in a million. In fact, with the proper sun and water and care, your garden is likely to be full of teleos tomato. I asked our girls to pick a perfect tomato for me this morning, and this is what I got. Good, right? I could eat this right now. I won't, it'll be sloppy, but I could. Full of perfect tomatoes. That's what we're talking about here when we say the word perfect. This gives us a better idea then what John is talking about in terms of love. When he says perfect love, he says teleos love. It's not perfect in the way I might imagine some sort of flawlessness, but it's a love that's complete, a love that's finished, a love that is grown up, a love that's ripe. So I think it would be better for us to use the word matured to describe the love here. Perfect is sort of misleading for us. Matured gets at, gets at the, the heart of it. It's a love that has been fully developed, ripened in its purpose. So when we're speaking about God's love in terms of perfect, we don't mean perfect love versus imperfect love. We mean matured versus immatured. Immatured doesn't mean it's bad, or flawed, or even childish. It just is not yet ripened. It's, it's, it's undeveloped. So a green tomato isn't wrong. It's not bad. It's just not yet at its prime. But when it ripens, God's love matures in us in a way that casts out fear. Now, what does that mean? What is the fear part? Let's look more at this word fear according to the scripture. For many of us, when we hear the word fear, we may instantly think of something that is scary. Something scary. 
So like a snake bite, a roller coaster, the dark, whatever it is that is scary for you. But in the Bible, fear is a lot more complex than that. Fear is often something that we are to experience in relationship to God. And it's a positive thing. You know, the people of God are sometimes referred to in the Bible as God-fearers. We fear God. We fear his name. So uh, that's, that's a good thing, but it's become common in recent years to say, oh, well, fear of God means something like respecting God, honoring God, maybe even being in awe of God. That's partly true, but it misses the full sense of fear here. The fear of God in the scripture describes a combination of both respect and scariness before God. Fear has to do with respect and a sense of scariness. The Bible sometimes uses the phrase fear and trembling. That trembling part is a body movement. A physical reaction, a a quaking, a sort of knee-knocking before God. And that's not because something bad is going to happen. It's not because God is bad or even that God is mad. It's because God is big. He is breathtaking. Staggeringly powerful. And so fear before God is fitting. We're told in the scripture that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's part of our worship, part of our praise to God, to our good, big God, to fear him. Uh, One of the earliest psalms, Psalm 2, if I can get to it quick enough, mentions this. Where is it? Verse 11. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. How's that for a phrase? Rejoice with trembling. Some people may push back on this idea. Preacher, hang on. Nope, we are not supposed to tremble. God loves us now. And so because of Jesus, we're supposed to approach the throne of grace with confidence and not with fear and trembling. That's partly true, but I would say you don't have to have one without the other. God does love us. We do have confidence in Jesus to approach the throne of grace. We should. We're not cowards. We're not cowering or hiding in a corner because of Jesus. We have confidence, but we also ought to have a fear of God. Fear and confidence can coexist before God, and it should. We see a small example of this uh, in the Wizard of Oz movie. I know this isn't a perfect example. You know, uh, Oz isn't God. Uh, he's kind of mean, and, and, and he's a fake after all anyway. Uh, but, but, you know, indulge me for a moment. You remember the scene when Dorothy and the Tin Man and uh, who else is there? The Scarecrow and the Wizard of Oz, they finally get to the Emerald City and they finally get an audience with Oz. And so they're told, you can go on down and see Oz and, and they link arms, you know, doing their famous walk. 
But now they're not skipping. They are walking slowly down this long emerald corridor until they finally step through these giant doors into the throne room of Oz. Where Oz appears as just a head with flames of fire shooting up around him. And he says, I am Oz, the great and powerful. Who are you? And they are physically shaking. Not just the cowardly lion, but all of them. As she is shaking, Dorothy steps slowly forward and speaks with a bit of a stammer, and she says, If you please, I am Dorothy, the small and meek, and we've come to ask your help. That moment is a combination of fear and some confidence. It's not exactly how a Christian stands before God, but it's a taste of this, this combination of what will be when we meet God. Jesus is our Savior. In supreme love, he laid down his life for us so we should have confidence. He has given that to us. Jesus is also the sovereign Lord of the universe. And when people around him catch a glimpse of that, they shake in fear. When Jesus walked on the water, the disciples looked and trembled. When Jesus stilled the stormy seas with just a word, they feared. When Jesus cast out the demons of legion, the whole community feared. And when Jesus was on the mountain transfigured, when he had a visit uh, from Moses and Elijah, and Jesus is glowing, shining, brighter than the sun, and there's a voice from heaven that says, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Peter, James, and John trembled. They were terrified. When the love of God matures in us, it does not decrease our fear of the Lord. It increases it. We want a fear of the Lord. It's part of our worship. At the end of Revelation, when, when all the redeemed throughout all the ages are gathered together with huge hallelujahs around the throne of God, there's a call. Praise our God, all you who fear him, the great and the small. And we all fall down before him in worship, with confidence, with joy, and with fear. Mature love, then, does not cast out all forms of fear. It would be a travesty if it did. Some knee-knocking fear is good, it's fitting, it humbles us to show us our place before the Lord. 
We even want to experience a measure of that fear before God, before Christ, before his angels. And there are other forms of fear that are fitting as well. But these are less desirable. There is fear in relation to sin and the consequences of sin. Uh, Paul writes this to Timothy as he's helping to direct what they're to do in their church. Let's see, 1 Timothy chapter 5, 1 verse, verse 20. 1 Timothy 5, verse 20, we hear this. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. Hear that? As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. In other words, if there is particular destructive sin that is persistent in a person in the church, there may be a need to rebuke that person even publicly. And part of the purpose for that is so that all who would see and hear that, not just some would see, but all the people in that church community would see and hear that rebuke of sin and stand in fear. A sense of, oh, uh uh-oh. I don't want to be like that. I don't want to be in those. I don't want that to happen to me. Now, we're aware that church discipline for sin can sometimes be misused and abused. It's awful when that happens, when it's a power play. We want to avoid that sort of thing that is unwise. But there is a proper place in the church for our good for this, to, to retain a fitting fear of sin and the harm that it can cause us. If this ever were to occur, Lord have mercy upon us, if this were ever to occur with us, we we would have to wisely rebuke that sin, not from anger, but from love. And not from a childish love, but from a mature love. This means that mature love does not cast out all fear. It does not cast out the fear of the Lord. It does not cast out a proper fear for discipline of sin. But it should cast out a particular form of fear in us. What fear is it, then, that perfect love casts out? It's in the text. I'll read verse 17, the verse before uh, the one that we've read. Verse 17, By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. And then at the end of 18, fear has to do with punishment. This is fear about the day of judgment. 
a fear of a particular punishment, not temporary punishment that happens here, sometimes for our discipline. We're talking about punishment that's eternal, a punishment that's in the pit forever. And there are some who should fear the day of judgment. They often don't, but they should. Jesus tells us that. If you are not in Jesus, your sin remains upon you, and you should fear him who can destroy both the body and the soul in hell. That is a fearful thing. But for the Christian who is in Jesus, the guilt of our sin is paid already. There's no sin left over that's got a debt over us. So we need not fear the final judgment of God. Let me summarize the meaning then of perfect love casts out fear. We can be more specific that matured love casts out the fear of eternal punishment. Matured love casts out the fear of eternal punishment. That means that the maturity of God's love and the fear of God's punishment are on opposite ends of a seesaw. As the love of God goes up in maturity, fear of his punishment goes down. And if there is an immaturity in God's love, fear of punishment goes up. Okay? I want us to notice something here as we move toward the end of this. Notice it's not judgment of God that's going up and down based on the maturity of our love. The judgment remains the same based on whether or not we're in Jesus, whether Jesus' blood has atoned for our sin. That judgment doesn't move. It is stable. Its place is secure. But it's our fear of judgment that moves. It's the fear that goes up and down based on the maturity of the love. Which means this. Listen. If you have ever experienced fear rising within you, of God's eternal judgments. That, that, that worrisome sense of disturbance. The thought of being cast out of God's presence forever. It makes the hair on your arm stand up at the thought of the fires of judgment. Even if it's just a vague, uneasy fear at the back of your mind, you know that that is an awful feeling. It's truly dreadful. And we want that fear to go away. We want that dread to be driven out of us. How? You know, as Christians, we are secure in Jesus, but as God's love matures, perfects in us, it's going to cast out the fear. So how can mature love, how can love mature so that it's fully grown and casts out that fear? There's two ways here in John that we're told that the love of God is perfected in us. 
two tangible ways that we can mature that love. The first is through obeying God. It's earlier in the letter, in chapter 2, verse 4. Note 5. Whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. Whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God is perfected. Which means if you find yourself fearing God's judgment, then it would be good for you to identify some sin in your own life and repent of it. Or to identify some fruit of the Spirit and pursue it. So that you obey God. This is not to earn God's grace or to change your place in the kingdom. It doesn't make God love you any more than he already does. That's impossible. He loves you as much as he ever can. But it will mature his love in the sense that that love will grow up into its intended effect. Obeying God will not silence every fear. But over the course of time, it will begin to quiet them, to cast out those fears so that you can have peace. That's one way we can mature God's love in us, through obeying God. But the second, more common one, is by loving others. That's in the text we have today in verse uh, 12. No one has ever seen God... But if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. We'll dive more into that next week, but here I'll just say this. The main way to perfect God's love in me is by giving his love away. Maya, Maya Angelou, the poet, said about creativity, the more you use it, the more you have of it. The more you use your creativity, the more you have. The same is true of love. Love is like that. The more you use it, the more you grow it. An immature person will try to hoard love for themselves. Try to scrape together all they can, stuff it in a shoebox and sit on the lid so it won't get away. And a person like this will, over time, begin to get jealous of other people's love, begin to grow bitter roots in them and and sour spirits. It's no wonder, then, that a person like that gets stuck in a cloud of the fear of judgment. But a mature person will try to increase love for others. And that doesn't leave us yearning or hungering for love, it's the opposite. Giving that love away feeds God's love in ourselves, and so it continues to grow. That person then will find that there's less occasion for fear of judgment because that person is less absorbed with thinking of himself at all. And even in the moments when he does think about his own ends, he's pleasantly surprised that there's just less fear in him. It's become cast out and been replaced with more confidence. This maturity of God's love in us takes time to grow, just like a tomato, but it's not unreachable. It's 
good for us to pursue perfecting God's love in us, to cultivate cultivate these things by his spirit so that fear of judgment would be cast out of us. Pray with me. Lord, would you help us to take these things to heart? Jesus, we know that you are the founder and the perfecter of our faith. You're the founder and perfecter of our love as well. Would you mature us? Fill us up by your spirit that we would obey you more and love others more. Give us a spirit that does not fear and cower, but a spirit that has love that multiplies. Would you do this in us to the honor of your great name? And we ask it in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.